As we indicated earlier, we uh, just started working our way through the book of James. So uh, we just started last week. So you haven't missed any, well, you have missed something you missed last week. But uh, we're early on in our study of the book. We come to this uh, particular section of scripture, the first uh, three verses after the introduction, and they're about endurance. I have been um, fascinated by endurance uh, throughout a lot of my life. Um, I think part of it just focuses on my own life. Uh, I try and push myself to endure mentally, and I don't always succeed, but it might show up uh, in the way we've got a massive hedge at our house, like massive, and it takes up both sides of our um, property, and twice a year I've got to tackle that hedge. And you know, I get about three quarters of the way through. It's about 2.30 in the afternoon, and my body is aching, and my legs are sore from going up and down ladders. My back is sore. And all I want to do is just say, I'm done go jump in the hot tub, have a supper, and go to bed. Um, but I realized that if I do that, I've quit, and I've got to get up the next day, and I've got to finish the thing, and who knows what the day's like. And So I just, I, you know, I wrestle with that in a lot of areas of my life. Um, one of the things that has caught my attention in life, which is way more significant than my wrestling with a hedge, is the U.S. Um, Navy SEALs. I've read a number of books by those who are SEALs and former SEALs, and I've been fascinated by the training process, by the by the process they need to go through in order to get their trident. And I'm amazed that, that what they can make their mind do or how their mind can direct their body even though their body wants to give up and quit. And it's probably one of the most strenuous um, uh, qualification uh, of any um, military in the world. And, and so I'm fascinated by it. I'm also fascinated by sports. Um, you know, I watch uh, what it takes for people to achieve incredible things in sports. Uh, whether it's a volleyball championship at your lo local university or whether it's a Stanley Cup to finally be on a team that wins the Stanley Cup or any other sort of significant trophy that we have. And uh, common to all of those is endurance. The ability to handle the day-in, day-out grind of training and of exercise and of soreness to look past that to the goal that you're trying to achieve. And as, as it relates to our Christian faith, we face incredible trials in our life. And the difference between the trials of the Christian life, say, versus the trials of uh, somebody that's in SEALs training or that's in sports training is that the trials of Christian life just cover a broad scope of life. In fact, they can come at us from any direction at any particular time. And we don't know what they will be, but they're there for our spiritual growth. And one of the reasons behind those, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, is they reveal genuine faith. We don't know when those trials are going to start in our life. We don't have advance warning that, oh, by the way, uh, on Wednesday at uh, 2.38 p.m., uh, this is going to happen to you. We get no warning in the trials that come our way, and so there's, there's really no context in life to which to fit them. And yet we do know that in suffering, God is at work to give us something much better than what we want and he's not content just with this temporary to give us temporary relief when eternal change is what we really need and so God is working through these trials to create endurance in us to bring us forward to a goal I don't know why James starts his book with trials and with endurance but I think it's probably necessary because it's just part of the foundation of Christian life we're gonna face trials Three things, and they come from each of the three verses. The first is simply this. In trials, James commands us to embrace a perspective. 
which is joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, and that's a universal term, brothers and sisters. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is the first imperative in the book of James. Remember I told you James has got more um, imperatives uh, comparatively than other other New Testament book, 54 of them. This is the first of 54 imperatives, which are calls to action. They're not suggestions, they're commands. And so he begins by simply saying, count it all joy. We unpack this a little bit to get some kind of perspective on what he's saying. And the first thing that he tells us is there's a sense of inevitability. He says, count it all joy when? It's not like we can skip through the Christian life and that many of us can just have this smooth sailing route right to the end. Every one of us is going to face trials along the way. It's part of living in a fallen world, and it's part of being a Christian. And so he says, count it all joy when, not if, you meet various trials. The second thing about uh, this first sentence that I think is helpful for us, at least to have in mind, is it could literally read, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It's a word that James uses to describe the man who was going down from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. It's not that he set out on that journey, he said, oh, I can't wait, I know that it, when I hit this curve, I'm going to be robbed. It was this, this thing that just happened to him out of the blue. He wasn't expecting it. He was just making his merry way down to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. It's the same word that Luke uses when he describes a shipwreck in Acts chapter 27, verse 41. How when Paul is on a boat, and, and you, could, you could translate it, and it fell into a place where two seas met, and it went aground. It wasn't like they were targeting that particular place so they could run aground. It just happened that in the storm, it pushed their boat into that particular place, and they, they, they ran it aground. And so the idea behind this is something unexpected. It's something unplanned for in our lives. And when that sort of something happens to us, we, we almost sometimes say out loud, what just happened? Or where did that come from? I didn't see that one coming. Or you've got to be kidding me, really? It's something that is so unexpected in our life that we haven't planned for it, as they say. And so it's, it's, these are trials that are inevitable. They're trials that catch us off guard. And James describes them as various trials, um, multifaceted trials. They, they come in all different sizes, all different shapes. Some of them are minor. Some of them are major. Some of them are, are just a, a bit upsetting. Others of them turn our worlds upside down. That little word various is used by Matthew when he, he describes people that came to Jesus for healing. And he says they came with various diseases. That just means that just about everything under the sun who people had, they came to Jesus for healing. Paul talks about various passions that we experience as uh, human beings. They're just a whole variety of emotions and passions that we experience in life. And so he says when these various passions fall or you fall into them. And then he, the final word that I think at least for the moment we need to think of is the word trial. The word trial is, a, is an interesting word because it's a word that can be translated two ways. Sometimes it's translated trial and other times it's translated temptation. And so the very same word is used in uh, verse 13 of James chapter 1. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And so it's the context that determines the translation of the word, whether it's a test or whether it's a trial. 
We'll talk more of that when we come to James chapter 1, verse 13. But many of us um, pray the Lord's Prayer from time to time. Lead me not in temptation. Well, God doesn't lead us into temptation. So it would be better to have lead me not into a trial. Because that makes sense, but it's the devil that takes that trial and turns it into a temptation. And so this is a, is a word that has both of those meanings. And in this particular context, in James chapter 1, he's talking about trials. Trials that come into our lives to test us. So he says we fall into them. They're inevitable. Um, uh, they, they, are, they can be small. They can be big. Um, we don't know where they come from, but... Um, we all of a sudden find ourselves in this situation. Peter talks about the same thing when he addresses the sort of the suddenness of trials that hit our life. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through. Don't, don't, don't let it catch you off guard. Understand that's part and parcel of living in the world. It's part and parcel of being a Christian. Don't be surprised when you face trials in your life. And he says, as if something strange were happening to you. I'm sure there was many of us here have felt that from time to time. We get, we get smacked with a trial. And, wow, this is strange. Where did that come from? But Peter, as James, is wanting us to put it into a biblical context. And Peter goes on and he says, instead, instead of thinking, being surprised or thinking something strange has happened to you, instead, be very glad. That's the same notion that James is talking. Count it, count it all joy when you experience various trials. Instead, be glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Jesus, in another place, said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous, for I have conquered the world. And so James is calling us to a kind of biblical accounting when he says, count it all joy. What does the it refer to? Well, the it refers to just about every kind of trial that we can ever face. It does refer to every trial we, we face. There is nothing that is outside of God's plan or purposes in this world or in our lives. And so when you're counting things in your life, um, everything that is considered a trial, whatever it is, whatever it is, count it all joy. Because God is using it to bring about some purpose in your life, which is your maturity and your perfection. Part of the reason and we can count everything um, joy is because we know that God is sovereign. I've been uh, often reading the book of Job, and uh, I was thinking about the book of Job again, particularly because James talks about Job uh, near the end, and we'll refer to it a little bit later. But Job was one that had to wrestle with the reality of the sovereignty of God. If you're familiar with the book of Job, it's, it's, it's a hard book to read for a lot of reasons. And it starts out with Job being presented as this amazingly holy, blameless man before God going about his life, and he's, he's serving God, and he's serving his family well. And then we get a, a spiritual scene that takes place. And in the spiritual scene, um, Hosetan, which is Satan, um, appears before God in the council of God, and, and God says to him, where have you been? And he says, well, I've been circling around the earth. And God says to him, and God says to him, have you considered my servant Job? God brings up Job to Satan. And he says, yeah, I've been considering Job, but I tell you what, God, the only reason Job loves you is because look at his life. 
He's got everything he wants. He's got a wonderful family. He's got health. He's got wealth. He's got, he's got um, uh, sons and daughters. He's got cattle. He's got servants. He's got everything. If you take that all away from him, he will curse you. And so God says, okay, go. Do what you want with Job. Just don't touch his body. And so if you read the story of Job, you know how one after the other, and it's, it's meant to be uh, just as soon as one servant stops speaking, the next servant speaks. And there's this, this three or four servants that come in, and Job has lost everything. And so the next scene is the Hasetan is before God again. And um, Job says, God says, if you consider my servant Job, and he says, well, yeah. But you know, he's got his health. You take away his health, God, and he'll curse you. And so God says to him, okay, do what you want with Satan or with Job, only don't kill him. And so if you know the story, you know that Job was struck with boils. And he wrestled with boils. We don't know how long, but it was an excruciating affliction that was placed upon him. So this went on for a period of time in Job's life. And, and there comes a point where God restores everything to Job. He restores his health. He restores family. He restores his property, all of these kinds of things. And his brothers and his sisters are coming to talk to him. And it says, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. And they ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. Well, I, the reason I say that is just so that we understand that everything, count it all joy, everything that finds its way into it, falls within the sovereign plan and purpose of God for our lives. How do we count these things all joy? We'll get into this a little bit, but part of the way that we count all things all joy is by looking ahead to the goal. There's no joy in the hurt and the pain and the sorrow that we feel. There's no hurt in the relational struggle that we're facing. But as a Christian, the joy is at the goal. The joy is what those trials produce. If, if you're in sports, there's not a lot of joy in going to three or four practices a week and just getting brutalized as you're in those practices. Your body beat up, your legs sore, your arms sore, every part of you aches. There's no joy in that, but what keeps you going, what drives you is that, is that opportunity to maybe play in the next game and certainly that opportunity to win the championship for your university or the Stanley Cup or whatever it might be. You endure all of the things that you face for the joy of winning. It's not the hurting that you like, but it's the joy of winning that you anticipate. And that's how biblical accounting works. When we face all this stuff in our lives, we count it all joy, we, we add it all up because we know that what all of this stuff is doing in our lives is producing maturity and completeness and perfection in us. James is concerned about genuine faith. As I've been reading and rereading James, it seems that that's one of the threads that holds it together. Is how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that, 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 that yours isn't just a mere profession? And that when, when you go out of this place, you're somebody different. Or when trials hit you, you, you take a different response to them. Well, one of the ways that you can test the genuineness of your faith is how you handle the trials that you face in life. And we see this with Jesus. It says of Jesus, who for the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? It was 
the salvation of all he would die for. It was the exaltation of, of God in his life, his resurrection from the dead, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And so we had to realize as James is beginning to open the book for us, the first thing that we need to realize is that we have to embrace a perspective and that perspective is joy as we walk through these things. The second thing that James talks about is a pathway. How do we get to the end? Well, it's through endurance. Endurance or through steadfast. In, verses, in verse 3, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I wrestled around with that one in my head. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm thicker than a lot of other people. And I sometimes read things and I think, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, you know. Well, what do you know? What did they know? Like, did they know what James was talking about when he says, you know? I think probably many of us, what do I know, James, as I'm facing trials? What, what do I know? And James unpacks it for them. He says, you need to know that as a Christian, your faith will be tested. The genuineness of your faith will be tested. There is a difference between a false and a real faith. There is a difference between a faith that is alive and a faith that is dead. There is a faith difference between a faith that is vibrant and a faith that is superficial. Jesus talks a lot about this um, throughout, uh, throughout uh, the course of his discourse with men and women on earth. And certainly there's one of those places where he talks about this um, at the end of Matthew chapter 7 as a group of individuals is standing before him and they say, well, Lord, we, we did this and we did that. We prophesied in your name. We did miracles in your name. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Not I don't know you any longer, but I never knew you. You never did my will. It was all about them. It was all about a profession. It was all about show. And Jesus said, I never knew you. We never had a relationship with one another. You know, you can go and read Matthew 13 in the parable of the, of the seeds, the sower and the seeds. And in there we find the seed that it falls on, on the, the hardened path and immediately Satan comes along and snatches it away. Or there's the seed that, that is received wonderfully and, and then persecution comes because of the word and they fall away. And then there's those that absorb the seed and it looks like, boy, this is really, really growing and there's, there's a genuineness and all of a sudden it says the cares of the world overtake. They're the ones that fall in the thorny ground and, and they fall away. And then there's the fourth ground which is the fertile ground and, and they not only hear but they understand and they produce food, fruit they have genuine faith and so James wants to guide us in the path of self-examination and realization of what a genuine faith is and we know do we not as the songwriter says through many dangers, dangers toils and snares we have already come but grace has brought us safe thus far and Grace will leave us home or lead us home. This is part of life. We're going to face trials, and it will, it, will, it will test the genuineness of our faith. We know people, do we not? I know people who used to be part of a body of Christ, and they're no longer a part of the body of Christ. And you talk to them and say, well, I used to go to church, but... Or you can talk to other people and say, well, you know, I used to follow Christ, but not anymore. Something happened along the way. Something, some trial, some difficulty came into their life. And I'm not, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not sort of flippantly suggesting at all 
that all we need to do is just be a little bit more resolute in trial. Nor am I suggesting at all that the pain that we experience when we go through trials is not deep pain and that the sorrow is not excruciating sorrow that we face, almost unbearable sorrow. What I am saying is that it seems at times faith collapses in the face of trials. And James wants them to know that their faith will be tested. And one of the evidences of genuine faith is that even though they might slip back, even though they might falter for a little bit, at the end they will come out enduring and trusting in God. So true faith clings to God and trusts God and keeps looking forward to God's help and feels the weight certainly of sorrow and pain, yet manages to keep hoping in God. So that's one of the things they know. It's one of the things I want us to know, loved ones. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are going to face trials. The second thing, he says, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We understand that, right? That, that That's part of how we make it through trials, Christian trials, and just trials of life. We, it's through endurance, and those trials are meant to produce in us endurance. I mean, you, you think about a, a young couple that's just starting out dating. They've just sort of met each other, and, and you know that there's going to be things that are going to come and test the resilience of their young love. And they might be dating for three or, four year, or three or four weeks or maybe three or four months. And at that point, there's still options available to them. And a, a, a cute girl might, might get their attention or a handsome man might get their attention. And, and will, their, will their, their budding relationship endure the realization that there's still other attractions available? Or as they continue to date one another, they'll realize that, they, oh, there's things about this person that I don't really like. There's things about them that, that really grate me the wrong way. And can I work my way through that? Can I embrace that? Can I accept that? You know, can I, can I hope that one day I'll change him? Um, but but, but there's, this, uh, there's this realization that, that there's not perfection, but endurance will help them work through that budding relationship. I think one of the areas that worries me a lot about endurance is parenting. I see endurance in children being thwarted Again and again and again. And there's a fellow that can say it way better than me, and then that way you can get mad at him and not me. But I agree with what he says. And Walt Mueller, he's, uh, he, he's been working with youth and writing about youth for over 40 years. I'll read a bit of a lengthy quote. He says, this week I started rereading The Coddling of the American Mind, and you know where he's going. The book posits that one of the lies we and our kids have been nurtured into believing is that what doesn't kill you will make you weaker. Nothing could be further from the truth, and nothing could be further from gospel truth. Suffering is the fertile ground for great growth in character, wisdom, and virtue. Suffering grows our dependence on God while undermining our dependence on ourselves. He says, I fear we are embracing this lie in our parenting and even in our youth ministries. I believe we actually need to pray that our kids will experience the refiner's fire of suffering. Really? I fear that we, or I believe that we actually need to pray that our kids will experience the refiner's fire of suffering in order to take them to the end of their selves, thereby leaving them grasping for God. He goes on and he says, in today's world, 
parental intervention and running interference for our kids has become standard practice. We hover at the ready in order to protect our kids from difficulties of, or the difficulties of life's responsibilities, and it's called helicopter parenting. Some of you have heard the term. We push forward on behalf of our kids in order to keep them ahead of their peers, and it's called snowplow parenting. And when we remove obstacles in their path to make life easier, it's called lawnmower parenting. But are these practices what make for good parenting? And are we preparing our kids to handle the inevitable difficulties of life in ways that will bring honor and glory to God while showing respect, responsibility, and maturity? And then this final couple sentences. Research is consistently pointing to the fact that in our effort to make life easier for our kids, we actually leave them ill-prepared for adult life. We make life more difficult for them as we steal away the opportunities provided by childhood and adolescence to mature and grow them emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. And that's the same for us as Christians in our Christian life. Trials are meant to cultivate us endurance, and James wants us to know that trials are intended to foster endurance. And Paul will tell us that trials, that endurance produces character. In another place, he says, pursue steadfastness. Like, pursue it. Don't walk away from endurance. Don't give up on steadfastness. Rather, pursue it. Embrace it in your life. Peter says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Have you ever thought about supplementing your faith? Well, he gives a whole bunch of things that we're to supplement our faith with. And he says one of them is steadfastness. Supplement your faith, add to your faith, steadfastness or endurance. See, endurance is the ability to remain under something, uh, to remain under a weight or a burden of some kind. It's the ability to take the strain and remain standing under the load that could easily crush you. Steadfast makes a reliable person. They will not give up. They will not buckle. And so he says, know that trials test the genuineness of your faith. Know that trials are meant to produce in you endurance. And know that endurance is not an end in itself, but it leads to maturity. And that's the goal. It's perfection. It's, it's not sinlessness, but it's maturity. It's, it's, it's a well-balanced life. It's strength of character as we walk with God. So the ultimate goal is not endurance, but what it produces in us. As Jeremiah says, God, quoting God, he says, For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. The final thing is, James says about trials is in verse 4. We are to brace an outcome, which is perfection. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's the second imperative now in James. Remember we said there's 54? Well, this is number two. And it's a passive command. Some of you were here on Thanksgiving, and Barry talked about um, uh, in Colossians, where it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Submit to the word of Christ. Well, here, James is saying, submit to endurance. 
let it finish its work. Don't short-circuit the, the, the process by, by, by trying to avoid the trial that you're in or by trying to walk away from it. It's really his way of saying, don't give up. Let me ask you in your own life, what does it look like when you stop the work of endurance? How do you resist the work of endurance in your life? What do you do? Not long ago, three, four years ago, I finished my last degree. And it was brutal for me, personally, for just a lot of reasons. There were many times in that process that I wanted to throw in the towel and walk away. It took time away from my wife. It took time away from my leisure as people invited me out to do stuff. And I said, no, I've got to work on my schoolwork. Almost every day, my endurance to complete that task was tested. And then you have to go and you have to defend your thesis. And so I flew to Chicago to defend my thesis. And I thought, good, it's over. I finally made it. Well, at the end of it, they give you a list of stuff that they want you to address and say, well, you didn't address this in your paper and you didn't address that. And why didn't you come at it from this way? And then you got to go back and you think, I'm done. I'm finished. What do you mean I've got to go and do some more? And you got to go back and you got to do more research and you got to incorporate the changes and suggestions, at least work on them. And then you get that done and, and then you've got to have it all, the, the formatting is nuts. Like you've, you've, it's got to be measured to the micromillimeter, like how, how, how far the indents are and, and how much the spacing is and, and, and on, on, on all of the papers. And, and I thought, I can't do this. And so I paid $1,400 to have somebody do my spacing and stuff for the paper. <laughs> There's people, that's all they do. They prey on people like me who are dumb. But I wanted to give up. And almost every step along the way, my endurance was tested. I could have quit. I could have walked away. I was again reading about the SEALs training program. And some of you know about Hell Week. It's at the end of the first phase of the training program for Navy SEALs. Five and a half days, 120 hours. If you're lucky, you get three to four hours sleep at the most in that period of time. Your body is hammered. Your stamina is tested. You have instructors that are taunting you all along the way. Listen, why, you know what? If you want some sleep, there's some beautiful hotels just down Coronado Alley there, and you can go and get a luxurious hotel, and you can get a bed, and you can sleep your life away. Just, just go and get a rest. You know, quit. Give up. Or some of you know they've got a shiny brass bell that, that uh, is in front of everybody. If you want to quit, you can run up and you can shake the bell. You don't actually run up. Most of them crawl up and in shame and you ring the bell and you say, I give up. James is saying here, don't give up. I know some of you, I don't know all of you, and I, I know what some of you have experienced and I know what some of you are experiencing now. I don't know what any of you are going to experience. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Don't ring the bell. Don't get a room in a luxurious hotel and sleep the day away. Let endurance finish its work.
And what is the work? Perfection. Completion. So you're lacking in nothing. Allow God. Submit to God in that trial. Doesn't mean you understand it. Doesn't mean you like it. Doesn't mean it's not heavy. Doesn't mean it's not painful. But you look ahead with joy to what God will accomplish in you and through you by what he's taking you through. Let endurance finish its work. I was thinking about Job again at the end of the book of um, James. He brings us back to the prophets and to Job. He says, Behold, in verse 11 of chapter 5, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. That's another way. Of, uh, uh, blessed is a, is, is a way of saying that God's favor rests on you. I was reading, I'm going sideways here. I'll come back. But I was reading in Daniel chapter 12 today. It's amazing how God in my own devotions just opens stuff up and reminds me of stuff. But in Daniel chapter 12, verse 13, the very last verse, he talks about 1,290 days, which is, I believe, representative of the church age. And, and chapter 12 is a brutal chapter because he describes all the persecutions and the suffering and the, the shatteringness of being a Christian as the world comes close to the end of this age. But then he talks about, blessed are those who make it for 1,335 days. In other words, blessed are those who endure. They're blessed by God, those who make it. Are you a 1335 Christian? And this is what James is saying here as well. Blessed are you who remain steadfast. He says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And I was thinking of Job. He endured in the light of physical pain, his own physical pain, the boils that just broke out all over his body. He endured in light of incredible loss. His children, his property, his servants, everything that he owned, he lost it. He endured in the light of personal attack as his three best friends just roasted him and said, Job, the reason your children are dead is because they sinned. Job, the reason you're going through so much trouble in your life is because you've sinned. Job, it's all your fault. If you just lived differently, God would bless you. He endured in the light of the silence of God. Have you ever been in a trial and you're crying out to God and it just feels you can't get anywhere? It feels that God is silent again and again. Job cried out to God and he says, I, first he wanted to die. But he says, no, I'm not going to die until I get a hearing from you, God. Speak to me. And he endured in the light of his wife's discouragement. Curse God and die, Job. Give up. Walk away. Let endurance finish its work. Persistent endurance. I think that's the phrase that, I, that I've sort of conjured up. Persistent endurance. Or persist endurance. There's that song, A Long and Winding Road. I won't sing it to you, but I just know the phrase. But isn't that the Christian life, loved ones? It's a long and winding road. From the very first trial you face to the very last breath you take, it's a long and winding road. Some of it's uphill, some of it's downhill. Some of it feels like a U-turn, some of it feels like a hairpin. Some of it's through the valleys, some of it's on the mountaintops. It's a long and winding road. Let endurance 
finish its way. As one person wrote, we can't grow better if we squirm out halfway through the process. Surrender your will to God. Embrace biblical accounting. Have a revolution in your thinking as you face various trials in your life. Whether you're in the midst of one, whether you're just coming out of one, or whether one's going to blast us on Wednesday morning at 3 o'clock. But learn biblical accounting. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you fall into various trials. Because those trials are producing endurance. And let endurance have its way. For it will bring you to perfection, completion, so that you lack nothing. Father, I thank you for your word. It's brutal sometimes to face life head on, but it is also incredibly hopeful. Father, some of us walked into the Christian life maybe deceived, thinking that once we become a Christian, everything will be rosy. And in fact, there's probably people that told us that, oh, once you become a Christian, it's all going to be wonderful. We were deceived by their words. Time and again, your word tells us that we will have trouble in this world. But Father, neither is it hopeless when we actually realize that. Because not only are we assured that you will be with us every step of the way, not only are we assured that you are sovereign, you are good, you are wise, you are just, you are fair, you are gracious, you are merciful. Not only do we have the promise that the work you started in us, you will bring it to completion. But we have the example of Christ Jesus, our elder brother, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. And you exalted him to your right hand. Father, I pray that you'd be with your beloved here this morning. I know that some are deep, deep, deep in trials right now. And this few minutes has probably been the toughest 25 minutes of their week or their month. I pray, Father, though, that your spirit would take the encouragement of these few verses and apply it to their hearts. that they would be reminded of biblical accounting and that even under the weight of what they're walking through, they will be able to walk through it joyfully because they realize that at the end is their perfection and their completion. Oh Lord, prepare us for what's ahead, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.